0: Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, alongside my TCA colleague and co-hostess, Maureen Ferguson. Welcome to the show, Maureen.
1: Hi, Gracie. Great to be chatting tonight.
0: It's good to have you on. I really wanted to talk to you about the Facebook files and everything that we are learning. Things that we suspected, things that we were afraid were true, but now we seem to have a lot of proof to back up our suspicions, all from the Wall Street Journal, very well researched, and things that are, you know, making us, stop and say, did we really just hand our lives and our children's lives over to these to these
1: tech giants who don't seem to have our good in mind. Well, that's exactly right. And this Wall Street Journal series has really been explosive because there's a whistleblower at Facebook. She is coming before Congress this week, actually, to um, share all of her documents, uh, many of which the Wall Street Journal has already been digging into. But all of you know these sort of bombshell revelations are kind of things that parents already knew we could tell that social media was bad for our kids. But now we have all kinds of evidence showing that, Social media and these smartphones are leaving kids more depressed, more anxious, for sure, more lonely. Particularly for girls, having serious body image issues. So parents have had the instinct that this is bad for their kids. But now uh, we're kind of seeing it in black and white from the the big tech giants' own documents. Do you remember way back when, when the internet came out,
0: <laughs> and all of us were sort of puzzled? What is the internet? What does it mean? That was a while ago. But even not so long ago, when schools started to implement technology in the classroom, we were told that, you know, the the way to human flourishing, the way to education, the path forward for the young people was to get everybody really connected. Remember, there was all this talk about how every kid had to have a laptop, you know, every kid in deepest, darkest Africa had to have his own laptop and Wi-Fi connection, and otherwise they'd be left behind. Now I'm starting to think, and I'm sure you agree with me, Maureen, that we're the ones who have been left behind, like the human
1: person has been left behind, By technology. It's exactly right. These devices, these platforms are really making us less human and really social media should be called unsocial media because particularly with children whose brains just aren't developed yet and they're still learning in-person social interactions. So to have them hooked on social media is is actually making them more lonely and disconnected. And of course, it it affects different kids differently, but, but with their developing brains and with the way that social media companies are actually preying on our children. It's, you know, parents are all worried about online predators. Well, I think what we're learning is that the social media companies are the online predators.
0: Wow, Maureen, and, that's a strong statement.
1: Social media companies they, as predators, but I think you're on the ball. I Sadly, I think it's true. And if any parents listening have not watched the, the Netflix documentary called The Social Dilemma, it, it's uh, whistleblowers from other companies, from Google, Twitter. And then now we have this big whistleblower from Facebook, which of course owns Instagram. So it's a whistleblower who's telling us all kinds of things about Instagram. But what this documentary, again, called The Social Dilemma tells us about is that sort of the geniuses out at Silicon Valley, they, they work with psychologists that are learning how to hook our children. And uh, one of the exposés in the Wall Street Journal was about TikTok and it kind of goes in depth about the algorithms. So if you have a child who just hovers for a moment over an image that's a little bit sexual, TikTok, the artificial intelligence, instantly learns, oh, there's curiosity there. And then it serves up a feed of sexual content that curious young minds go down such rabbit holes. And, uh, you know, they don't have the judgment or impulse control. They're developing teenage brains. And TikTok knows this. And they then serve up feeds if if you want to be absolutely horrified google the the wall street journal expose on tiktok the title of the article is how tiktok serves up sex and drug videos to minors and it is i mean this is nothing like the sex drugs and rock and roll that our parents used to fret about
0: maureen do you remember when everybody was so outraged that cigarette companies knew that smoking was addictive and that it caused cancer. And this was, wow, everybody was so horrified. How could they do this to us? But we're allowing giant tech companies to cause all of us, adults and children, but super sad for the children, to become addicts to their ploys. I mean, they're creating addictive interactions on purpose to keep us hooked. And as you say, to the lack of the values and the lack of morals that they show, and especially in in the field of family and human sexuality, to, to pervert our children and to destroy their futures, really. Because if your mind is so warped as a child and as a teen that that you're not able to form a happy, steady, stable family, then
1: what else, what could be worse? I'd much rather my children get lung cancer. So it's absolutely true. And we're learning more and more about the addictive nature of these things. And again, watch The Social Dilemma and you'll see it. So I think we know the content is bad. It's actually so much worse than we think it is. And on TikTok, you know, it's glorified of eating disorders, for example. Wow. And again, if they see a girl has any the artificial intelligence quickly reads a girl's mind essentially and then manipulates her mind to draw her further into this. So one of the videos in the Wall Street Journal article talks about how it's a quote from a girl. I threw up for the first time today. It felt so relieving. I'll be skinny soon. So oh, endless content like that for any girl that, that the artificial intelligence can. Has body image issues, and which girl? Um, which girl doesn't, Maureen? These days, which
2: girl
0: doesn't? Right, <laughs> and Maureen. The and you know what's so content. so sad about TikTok? And I want to hear about the sexual content. I don't want to hear about it, but I think we need to talk about it. What's so sad about TikTok is TikTok is specifically, and maybe some of our listeners don't know about TikTok, because they might not have young preteens in their home and teenagers. TikTok is is specifically targeted at nine and ten year olds. As soon as these kids get a phone on their hand, in in their hand, in their possession, or their mother's phone or their father phone because i've seen very young children using tiktok just using their parents phone they're encouraged to make these little videos and join this online community that at first seems very benign because they are doing a little you know a cute little dance video and it's very um innocent and and pure but
1: they start sharing it and then they're pulled and they're sucked into this dark web that's exactly right and what the wall street journal did was they created um accounts saying that they were 13 to 15 years old and then they examined the content of, of those accounts they say it was dominated by sexual content and when I say sexual content I like this is beyond pornography which is bad enough because it rewires children's brains but things like how to tie knots for sex recover from violent sex acts fantasies about rape and and at one point The Wall Street Journal says the accounts feed was 90 percent of about bondage and sex.
0: And this was this was content. created so that TikTok knew that it was a thirteen to so the algorithm has the information that this is a young young girl or young boy, a thirteen to fifteen yes. year old. All this time they have the algorithm. Yes. In front of them. And it and it purposefully shovels filth at children is what you're yes. saying. <laughs> wow. That's amazing, Maureen. And that we've handed over our children to them. I went to dinner with my husband on Saturday night. We try to do a date night every week. We almost always succeed. Thank God. We went to a restaurant and in the, the table next to us was a couple out with their two young boys and each one of them had an iPad in front of them and they had headphones plugged into the iPad and they never looked up from the iPad and the parents were having a really nice romantic dinner. I guess they didn't have to get a sitter because they gave the sitting privileges to the tech companies. So aren't a lot of parents making the tech companies
1: their babysitters? Absolutely. And I'm I'm in the process of writing a piece on just this book. Point right now because we have this Facebook whistleblower. Congress is reacting. We have a very laudable bipartisan effort here to expose the social media companies and their manipulation of our children. You know, the rewiring an entire generation's brains. Um, but, but so even though there's bipartisan support for an investigation into this on Capitol Hill, we parents have the ultimate control. We do not have to buy these devices for our children. I mean, we don't have to give them a smartphone. We can wait until they're much older and have developed more, you know, self-control, self-mastery of these things. You know, if your child can't even make their bed or keep their room straight, how are they going to have the self-mastery to control these devices? The only way a parent, once you give the device to your child, you're sort of entering into a constant tug of war with your child. It's actually much easier to just say no to social media. No smartphone. You can give a dumb phone to your kid. There, there's these, my, my teenagers have, it's called a Gab Wireless, and it's a phone that's just a phone. It's, you know, texting. There's, there's just no reason that your child needs a supercomputer in their pocket at all times. If you're just joining
0: us, you're listening to Conversations with Consec- I'm your hostess dr. Gracie Christie alongside my TCA colleague and co-hostess Maureen Ferguson we're discussing the devastatingly dark realities of social media especially as they apply to the younger people amongst us Maureen as far as adults are concerned we set very bad example for our children very often we set a bad example for young people we we, we ourselves have become addicted to that constant interaction with total strangers <laughs> and uh, they many times it's total strangers many times it's people that we don't really have any interest in or Relationship with, but we we're interested in whether they like our our little post or, or our picture. I think a lot of us get drawn into it because we well we we want to see uh, we want to communicate with uh, see our friends' um, lives, is how they're going, and, and we, we're drawn there by affection and 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 by, by for good reasons. But we quickly then become addicted. So I can just I can just only begin to imagine what it is for a young for a young person. I've watched it happen, but you and I had the kind of childhoods where we played outside and. When we had relationships, we had to make them face to face, heart to heart. It's very sad for children that they that they're missing so much to instead be given, like you say, a supercomputer in their pocket.
1: Well, it, it's true, and and my point is, we don't have to say yes today. Um, I mean, and the the best way to do it is to get together with the the parents. Uh, of your children's friends and get together, collude together. Parental collusion is a good thing when you're looking mm-hmm, out for that's the true. Your children. Very true. But but get together and say we're going to put off uh, smartphones for our kids. There's a great website called Wait Until Eighth. So you know it argues don't give your kid a smartphone until they're at least in eighth grade. I would argue go even farther than eighth grade. Mm-hmm. Our our teenagers we waited till junior senior year, and you know they did just fine. We very consciously help them to build an in-person social life, you know, invest in a ping-pong table for your basement or a fire pit for your backyard, you know, let them eat pizza and junk food and make your (laughs) house the teenager hangout house. And, you know, our our children who had no smartphones or social media until they were much older teens, they were perfectly well-adjusted children. I mean, my two girls were elected president of their senior class by their peers, even though they weren't, you know, on social media or didn't have a smartphone, so it, it's possible to help our children to build in real life social lives. And it's so much healthier for them to grow up without being influenced by YouTubers and TikTokers and, and being manipulated by these Silicon Valley algorithms. It's, you know, you can actually outsmart the artificial intelligence of, of the Silicon Valley geniuses by not giving these devices to your kids.
0: We are making them pray when we hand them the device, right? There predators whether those those are people but also algorithms and also tech companies and we make them prey when we give them the phones what do you think you mentioned um congress taking a look at this investigations by the government what do you think would would spark their condemnation is it the the fact that the algorithms are built to create addiction or is it the fact that what what they're being, what people are being exposed to, especially children, is so um, degenerate. Because I wonder if. That They can even go that far in in that moral realm of saying, oh, these, these kinds of sexualities children shouldn't be exposed to. Would they even go so far? Are they more worried about addiction?
1: Well, what caught the eye of uh, leaders in the Senate was the fact that Facebook knows Instagram is unhealthy for teenagers, particularly teenage girls. It's bad for their mental health. So it actually it, it actually it actually elevates suicide
0: rates in teenage girls. And this is a real statistical uh, correlation, correct?
1: Right? Yeah. So, so I think they're taking a, a public health perspective on it, and and like you were alluding to earlier with the cigarette companies, who you know claim that nicotine wasn't addictive. Um, it's a similar dynamic here that Congress is saying, hey, you know this is bad for the mental health of our teenagers. You're hiding that information. You have not been transparent with the public. So. You know, now we have Senator Marshall Blackburn and Senator Richard Blumenthal, a Democrat. So you have a Republican and a Democrat who are holding their second hearing on this this week to look into it. But again, I would say the politicians are going to argue back and forth, but as parents, who are in charge of their children. And I would encourage parents, be confident in your leadership. You know in your gut that this is not good for your kids. So it, it doesn't mean you have to be a Luddite. It, your child can do all their homework on a family computer in the you know living room, family room, kitchen, a public place where they won't be tempted to go down these very alluring rabbit holes. you know. And you can give them a phone. There's a product called the Light Phone, Gab Wireless, I mentioned. Your kid can have a phone. It just doesn't have to be. A supercomputer, you know, if, if we don't want to raise screenagers, then screenagers. Don't give them screens to be connected to 24 hours a day. I mean, we're raising cyborgs. And you point out that we ourselves struggle with being addicted to these devices. So we do have to set a good example, set limits on, on our screen time. And I guess my sort of thought with parents is that it's actually much easier to say no. It's easier to raise a happier kid. It's easier to raise a kid that's not being filled with this very insidious content that you know, is making them less mentally healthy. The lack of mental health. Where do you think it comes from? I can think of a couple pla- a couple things,
0: right. First of all, it raises expectations, especially for girls, of a certain kind of bodily perfection that they can't meet. It raises expectations of a uh, you know this f- fabulous social life where a thousand people are liking you, and if they don't like you, you're a failure. Another thing that I see that is very damaging for boys and girls is that kind of a public life where everything that they do is broadcast. I think that that lack of privacy that lack lack of having your own tender spaces that that you keep to yourself and and you share maybe with your family and your closest friends. That has to be very bad for for kids' mental health. What other things do you think are are damaging our kids in that sense?
1: Oh, I think you hit a lot of them. I mean, certainly the body image and, you know, fear of missing out because then kids are aware of every party they weren't invited to. The whole idea of life as sort of performance, uh, sort of living Instead of living in the moment, enjoying the people that you're in person with, the thought of, oh, I have to get the perfect picture of this moment for my self-presentation online, for my image online. And, and I love what you said about sort of your own sort of private tender spaces. We, we don't have to announce our relationship status online <laughs> at every step of the way. Um, yeah, so I think you had a lot of them, Gracie.
0: You know, another thing that I see ch- young people doing that I think is very damaging is they've uh, exposed themselves to shame and, and also their families. You know, young people get very passionate. You remember being a young person, right, Maureen? We're at the same age. Yeah, I think it wasn't 18, that long ago. long ago. And we, we, you get passionate when you're young and you, you, you want to live out loud and say all the things that are at the top of your, at the in the, in the front of your head. And, and sometimes those things aren't, you know, they, they're not good to say. They're going to cause you shame now or later or your family. I see a lot of people acting young people acting out online in ways that are going to hurt them very badly.
1: Well, it's true because teenagers don't have often don't have the judgment and experience to know what to say online or what not to say online. And I think I think parents often feel so powerless over these devices. But again, I just want to encourage parents that you do actually have power over these devices because you don't have to give them to your kids. Your kids don't have to be online and it's actually easier to raise kids who are not hooked on these devices and platforms. Um, so I just encourage parents to be strong and confident in saying no. Oh, thank you Maureen.
0: That's really good advice. And and yeah, let's let's parents stick together and and stop letting tech companies raise our children for us. So we can do a much better job. Thanks for joining me today, Maureen. Great to be with you, Gracie. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at the Catholic And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel.
2: This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation God wants to have with each of us as together we celebrate the great gift of the birth of the Lord Jesus this Christmas 2021. On Christmas, the church gives us four different masses to help us mark the wonder of the day. And the gospel and the liturgical prayers for each of them have a different focus and invite us into a different consequential conversation. At the Vigil Mass, we ponder the angel's words to St. Joseph, not to be afraid to take Mary and the child growing within her into his home. We ask God for the grace to help us joyfully welcome Jesus as our Redeemer. At midnight mass, we contemplate the radiant glory of God shining around the angels as they announce the good news of great joy to the shepherds awake keeping their watch over their flocks by night. We pray to God that the light of Christ's birth might shine in the darkness and lead us to see all things in the light of Christ. At the mass at dawn, we accompany the shepherds and they're going with haste to Bethlehem to see the infant Savior. We ask the Lord to allow the light of faith to shine through our deeds And to help us to encounter christ and offer ourselves to him as worthy gifts in all of those gospels we retrace the history of progressive revelation by god and deepening awareness among his people seeking to lead us step by step into a greater assimilation of that mystery at mass on christmas day however In the Gospel and in the prayers, we come to the dramatic conclusion, the Church's most profound explanation of the meaning of the birth of Jesus. Many people, as you know, talk about the reason for the season of Christmas. And by it, they basically mean something good, that Jesus is the reason for the season, as they seek to keep themselves, their families, and our culture focused on God rather than on commercialism. But as praiseworthy as those efforts are, we need to state that it's not sufficient or theologically precise to declare that Jesus alone, is the reason for this season. The real reason for the season of Christmas is what Jesus seeks to do in us. It's the why behind the what of the Son of God's becoming man. This is what Christmas Mass during the day helps us to ponder. The Gospel for the Mass from the prologue of St. John is one of the deepest passages in all of sacred scripture. Unlike the Gospel readings at the other Christmas Masses, which have had hundreds of Christmas hymns written about them in various languages, this passage seldom makes it into music. There are no herald angels singing, no shepherds watching, no cattle lowing, no stars brightly shining, no little town of Bethlehem, no swaddling clothes, no Mary, no Joseph. But the Gospel brings us to the heart of what lies underneath all those unforgettable details. It communicates to us first that the child placed in the manger is the actual incarnation of the Word who was in the beginning with God and was God. That this child is the eternal word who out of love for us took on our flesh, our whole human nature, and made his dwelling among us. And second, it points to the whole mystery of whether we and others accept or reject this gift. Whether we're like the ancient Bethlehem innkeepers who refused to make room even for a pregnant woman in labor. Whether we're like that woman and her construction working husband who welcomed that child and allowed him to alter the trajectory of their life. St. John says, he came to what was his own, but his own people didn't accept him. But, this is one of the most important buts in history, but to those who did accept him, to those who believe in his name, who were born, not by natural generation, nor by human will, nor by man's decision, but of God, he gave power to become children of God. If we truly accept Jesus, if we receive him as he wishes to be received, if we allow him who took on human flesh to take on our flesh and blood, then we receive power to become children of God. This isn't just a beautiful image. It's the reality of what Christmas is meant to bring about. This is the mystery we contemplate and beg for in the opening prayer of Christmas Mass during the day. Turning to God the Father, we pray, O God, who wonderfully created the dignity of human nature and still more wonderfully restored it, grant that we may share in the divinity of Christ who humbled himself to share in our humanity. The meaning of Christmas is that we cooperate with God in His making us divine. and his giving us a greater gift than creation. Creation was a miracle, but our recreation by Christ's redeeming love is something even more miraculous. After our fall, God comes to pick us up and lift us up even higher than we were before. The early saints of the Church said that the deepest mystery of Christmas is the admirabile commercium, a Latin expression that means... The miraculous exchange that happens between God and us when we accept the gift Christ is and gives. He has taken on our humanity to make us sharers in his own divine life. The preface the priest sings later at Mass develops this mystery. He prays to the Father. For through Christ your Son, the holy exchange that restores our life has shone forth today in splendor. When our frailty is assumed by your word, not only does human mortality receive unending honor, But by this wondrous union, we too are made eternal. That gift not only changes our being, but our doing. At the Offertory, the priest on behalf of all of us begs the Lord to make acceptable our oblation on this solemn day, when you manifested the reconciliation that makes us wholly pleasing in your sight, and inaugurated for us the fullness of divine worship. Christ, on Christmas Day, makes it possible for us to worship God the Father fully. Because in uniting ourselves to him, he makes it possible for us to give of ourselves totally to God and to others. Just as on Christmas, we ponder how Jesus became our great Christmas gift. We also contemplate how he, in turn, in divinizing or sanctifying us from within, seeks to make us, in turn, Christmas gifts. Gifts of his incarnate presence, not only to the Father, but to others. So that together with Jesus, we can be the instruments of their sanctification and divinization. This admirabile commercium, this miraculous exchange, is the most consequential conversation of all time. One made not with words, but with God's divinity in our humanity. We enter into a wondrous dialogue that is meant to last forever. That's the reason for the season. That's the explanation for Christ becoming man and being born of a virgin. That's the purpose for which God created us and redeemed us. So we prepare for Christmas Mass and come together to celebrate the enduring manifestation of God with us. We give God thanks for going so far beyond what was possible for those in Bethlehem. There, Mary and Joseph, the angels, the shepherds, the wise men, and others, could all come and adore Christ the Lord on the outside. But at Mass, we have the privilege to adore the same Christ on the inside, to receive Him within so that He can transform us from within more and more into His human and divine likeness. That's the reason why in the middle of the offertory of every Mass, When the priest is placing a drop of water in a chalice full of wine, the priest always recites the opening prayer of Mass on Christmas Day by the mystery of this water and wine, which symbolizes our humanity and Christ's divinity, respectively may we come to share in the divinity of Christ, who humbled himself to share in our humanity. The Mass is where we receive more and more the power to become children of God, glorifying our Father in Heaven. It's where we learn how to give God the fullness of divine worship. It's where the admirabile commercium that Christ came into the world to bring reaches its culmination. The reason for the Christmas season is to lead us to what Christ accomplishes at Mass. As St. John says in his prologue, as we hear Christmas Mass during the day, the Word of God becomes flesh and dwells among us and we see his glory the glory of the father's only son full of grace and truth that leads us to cry out venite adoremus dominum oh come let us adore him a blessed christmas to you and your family
0: Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, alongside my TCA colleague and co-hostess, Maureen Ferguson. Welcome to the show, Maureen. Hi, Gracie. Great to be chatting tonight. It's good to have you on. I really wanted to talk to you about the Facebook files and everything that we are learning. Things that we suspected, things that we were afraid were true, but now we seem to have a lot of proof to back up our suspicions. All from the Wall Street Journal, very well-researched. And things that are, you know, making us stop and say, did we really just hand our lives and our children's lives over to these, to these tech giants who don't seem to have our good
1: in mind? Well, that's exactly right. And this Wall Street Journal series has really been explosive because there's a whistleblower at Facebook. She is coming before Congress this week, actually, to um, share all of her documents, uh, many of which the Wall Street Journal has already been digging into. But all of you know these sort of bombshell revelations are kind of things that parents already knew. We could tell that social media was bad for our kids. But now we have all kinds of evidence showing that social media and these smartphones are leaving kids more depressed, more anxious, for sure, more lonely, particularly for girls having serious body image issues. So parents have had the instinct that this is bad for their kids. But now uh, we're kind of seeing it in black and white from the, the big tech giants own documents.
0: Do you remember way back when when the Internet came out and all of us were sort of puzzled? What is the Internet? What is it? It mean? That was a while ago. But even not so long ago, when schools started to implement technology in the classroom, we were told that, you know, the, the way to human flourishing, the way to education, the path forward for the young people was to get everybody really connected. Remember, there was all this talk about how every kid had to have a laptop, you know, every kid in deepest, darkest Africa had to have his own laptop and Wi-Fi connection, and otherwise they'd be left behind. Now I'm starting to think, and I'm sure you agree with me, Maureen, that
1: we're the the ones who have been left behind, like the human person has been left behind by technology. It's exactly right. These devices, these platforms are really making us less human. And really, social media should be called unsocial media, because particularly with children whose brains just aren't developed yet, and they're still learning in person social interactions. So to have them hooked on social media is is actually making them more lonely and disconnected. And of course, it it affects different kids differently. But but with their developing brains, and with the way that social media companies are actually preying on our children, it's, you know, parents are all worried about online predators. Well, I think what we're learning is that the social media companies are the online predators.
0: Wow, Maureen, that's a strong statement, social media companies as predators, but
1: I think you're on the ball. I sadly, I think it's true. And if any parents listening have not watched, Watch the Netflix documentary called The Social Dilemma. It's uh, whistleblowers from other companies from Google, Twitter. And then now we have this big whistleblower from Facebook, which of course owns Instagram. So it's a whistleblower who's telling us all kinds of things about Instagram. But what this documentary, again, called The Social Dilemma tells us about is that sort of the geniuses out at Silicon Valley, they, they work with psychologists that are learning how to hook our children. And uh, one of the exposes in the Wall Street Journal was about TikTok. And it kind of goes in depth about the algorithms. So if you have a child who just hovers for a moment over an image that's a little bit sexual, TikTok, the artificial intelligence, instantly learns, oh, there's curiosity there. And then it serves up a feed of sexual content that curious young minds go down such rabbit holes. And, uh, you know, they don't have the judgment or impulse control. They're developing teenage brains. And TikTok knows this. And they then serve up feeds if if you want to be absolutely horrified google the the wall street journal expose on tiktok the title of the article is how tiktok serves up sex and drug videos to minors and it is i mean this is nothing like the sex drugs and rock and roll that our parents used to fret about
0: maureen do you remember when everybody was so outraged that cigarette companies knew that smoking was addictive and that it caused cancer. And this was, wow, everybody was so horrified. How could they do this to us? But we're allowing giant tech companies to cause all of us, adults and children, but super sad for the children, to become addicts to their ploys. I mean, they're creating addictive interactions on purpose to keep us hooked. And as you say, to the lack of the values and the lack of morals that they show, and especially in the, in the fields of family and human sexuality, to, to pervert our children and to destroy their futures, really. Because if your mind is so warped as a child and as a teen that that you're not able to form a happy, steady, stable family, then what else, what could be worse? I'd much
1: rather my children get lung cancer. So it's absolutely true. And we're learning more and more about the addictive nature of these things. And again, watch The Social Dilemma and you'll see it. So I think we know the content is bad. It's actually so much worse than we think it is. And on TikTok, you know, it's glorified of eating disorders, for example. And again, if they see a girl has any the artificial intelligence quickly reads a girl's mind essentially and then manipulates her mind to draw her further into this. So one of the videos in the Wall Street Journal article talks about how it's a quote from a girl. I threw up for the first time today. It felt so relieving. I'll be skinny soon. So content like that for any girl that that the artificial intelligence take. Has body image issues, and which girl? Um, which girl doesn't Maureen these days? Which girl doesn't right? <laughs> and Maureen, the and you know what's so content. so
0: sad about TikTok, and I want to hear about the sexual content. I don't want to hear about it, but I think we need to talk about it. What's so sad about TikTok is TikTok is specifically, and maybe some of our listeners don't know about TikTok, because they might not have young preteens in their home and teenagers. TikTok is is specifically targeted at nine and ten year olds. As soon as these kids get a phone on their hand, in in their hand, in their possession, or their mother's phone, or their father's phone because i've seen very young children using tiktok just using their parents phone they're encouraged to make these little videos and join this online community that at first seems very benign because they are doing a little you know a cute little dance video and it's very um innocent and and pure but they start sharing it and then they're pulled and they're
1: sucked into this dark web that's exactly right and what the wall street journal did was they created um accounts saying that they were 13 to 15 years old. And then they examined the content of of those accounts. They say it was dominated by sexual content. And when I say sexual content, like this is beyond pornography, which is bad enough because it rewires children's Brains, but things like how to tie knots for sex, recover from violent sex acts, fantasies about rape. And and at one point the Wall Street Journal says the accounts feed was ninety percent about bondage and sex.
0: And a this was this was content. created so that TikTok knew that it was a thirteen to so the algorithm has the information that this is a young young girl or young boy, a thirteen to fifteen yes. year old. All this time they have the algorithm. Yes. In front of them. And it and it purposefully shovels Filth at children is what you're saying. Wow, that's amazing, Maureen. And that we've handed over our children to them. I went to dinner with my husband on Saturday night. We try to do a date night every week. We almost always succeed, thank God. We went to a restaurant and in the the table next to us was a couple out with their two young boys. And each one of them had an iPad in front of them. And they had headphones plugged into the iPad. And they never looked up from the iPad. And the parents were having a really nice romantic dinner. I guess they didn't have to get a sitter because they gave the sitting privileges to the tech companies.
1: So aren't a lot of parents making the tech companies their babysitters? Absolutely. And I'm I'm in the process of writing a piece on just this point right now because we have this Facebook whistleblower. Congress is reacting. We have a very laudable bipartisan effort here to expose the social media companies and their manipulation of our children. You know, they're rewiring an entire generation's brains. Um, but But so even though there's bipartisan support for an investigation into this on Capitol Hill, we parents have the ultimate control. We do not have to buy these devices for our children. I mean, we don't have to give them a smartphone. We can wait until they're much older and have developed more, you know, self-control, self-mastery of these things. You know, if your child can't even make their bed or keep their room straight, how are they going to have the self-mastery to control these devices? The only way a parent, once you give the device to your child, you're sort of entering into a constant tug of war with your child. It's actually much easier to just say no to social media. No smartphone. You can give a dumb phone to your kid. There, there's these, my, my teenagers have, it's called a Gab Wireless, and it's a phone that's just a phone. It's, you know, texting. There's, there's just no reason that your child needs a supercomputer in their pocket at all times.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to conversations with consequence. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, alongside my TCA colleague and co-hostess, Maureen Ferguson. We're discussing the devastatingly dark realities of social media, especially as they apply to the younger people amongst us. Maureen, as far as adults are concerned, we set very bad example for our children very often. We set a bad example for young people. We, we, we ourselves have become addicted to that constant interaction with total strangers. <laughs> and uh, they. many times it's total strangers. Many times it's people that we don't really have any interest in. A relationship with, but we are interested in whether they like our our little post or or our picture. I think a lot of us get drawn into it because we well we we want to see uh, we want to communicate with uh, see our friends' um, lives, is how they're going, and, and we're drawn there by affection and, and and by by for good reasons. But we quickly then become addicted. So I can just I can just only begin to imagine what it is for a young for a young person. I've watched it happen, but you and I had the kind of childhoods where we played outside and. When we had relationships, we had to make them face to face, heart to heart. It's very sad for children that they that they're missing so much to instead be given, like you say, a supercomputer in their
1: pocket. Well, it, it's true, and and my point is, we don't have to say yes today. Um, I mean, and the the best way to do it is to get together with the the parents. Uh, of your children's friends and get together, collude together. Parental collusion is a good thing when you're looking mm-hmm, out for that's the good true. Of your children. True. But, but get together and say we're going to put off uh, smartphones for our kids. There's a great website called Wait Until Eighth. So, you know, it argues don't give your kid a smartphone until they're at least in eighth grade. I would argue go even farther than eighth grade. Mm-hmm. Our, our teenagers, we waited till junior, senior year and, you know, they did just fine. We very consciously help them to build an in-person social life, you know, invest in a ping-pong table for your basement or a fire pit for your backyard, you know, let them eat pizza and junk food and make your (laughs) house the teenager hangout house. And, you know, our our children who had no smartphones or social media until they were much older teens, they were perfectly well-adjusted children. I mean, my two girls were elected president of their senior class by their peers, even though they weren't, you know, on social media or didn't have a smartphone, so it, it's possible to help our children to build in real life social lives. And it's so much healthier for them to grow up without being influenced by YouTubers and TikTokers and and being manipulated by these Silicon Valley algorithms. It's, you know, you can actually outsmart the artificial intelligence of, of the Silicon Valley geniuses by not giving these devices to your kids.
0: We are making them pray when we hand them the device, right? We're, predators whether uh, those those are people but also algorithms and also tech companies and we make them prey when we give them the phones what do you think you mentioned um congress taking a look at this investigations by the government what do you think would would spark their condemnation is it the the fact that the algorithms are built to create addiction or is it the fact that what what they're being what people are being exposed to especially children is so um degenerate because i wonder if that they can even go that far in in that moral realm of saying, oh, these these kinds of sexualities, children shouldn't be exposed to. Would they even go so far? Are they more worried about addiction?
1: Well, what caught the eye of uh, leaders in the Senate was the fact that Facebook knows Instagram is unhealthy for teenagers, particularly teenage girls. It's bad for their mental health. So it actually it, it actually it actually elevates
0: suicide rates in teenage girls, and this is a real statistical uh, correlation
1: correct? Yeah. So, so I think they're taking a a public health perspective on it. And, and like you were alluding to earlier with the cigarette companies who, you know, claim that nicotine wasn't addictive. um, It's a similar dynamic here that Congress is saying, hey, you know, this is bad for the mental health of our teenagers. You're hiding that information. You have not been transparent with the public. So, You know, now we have Senator Marsha Blackburn and Senator Richard Blumenthal, a Democrat. So you have a Republican and a Democrat who are holding their second hearing on this this week to look into it. But again, I would say the politicians are going to argue back and forth. But as parents, who are in charge of their children. And I would encourage parents, be confident in your leadership. You know in your gut that this is not good for your kids. So it, it doesn't mean you have to be a Luddite. It, your child can do all their homework on a family computer in the you know living room, family room, kitchen, a public place where they won't be tempted to go down these very alluring rabbit holes. You know, And you can give them a phone. There's a product called the Light Phone, Gab Wireless, I mentioned. Your kid can have a phone. It just doesn't have to be a supercomputer. You know, if if we don't want to raise screen agers, then give them screens to be connected to 24 hours a day. I mean, we're raising cyborgs. And you point out that we ourselves struggle with being addicted to these devices. So we do have to set a good example, set limits on on our screen time. And I guess my sort of thought with parents is that it's actually much easier to say no, it's easier to raise a happier kid. It's easier to raise a kid that's not being filled with this very insidious content that you know, is making them less mentally healthy. The lack of mental health,
0: where do you think it comes from? I can think of a couple pla- a couple things, right? First of all, it raises expectations, especially for girls of a certain kind of bodily perfection that they can't meet. It raises expectations of, uh, of, you know, this fabulous social life where a thousand people are liking you and if they don't like you, you're a failure. Another thing that I see that is very damaging for boys and girls is that kind of a public life where everything that they do is broadcast. I think that that lack of privacy, that lack... Of, of having your own tender spaces that, that you keep to yourself and, and you share maybe with your family and your closest friends, that has to be very bad for, for kids' mental health. What other things do you think are, are damaging our kids in that sense?
1: Oh, I think you hit a lot of them. I mean, certainly the body image and, you know, fear of missing out because then kids are aware of every party they weren't invited to. The whole idea of life as sort of performance, uh, sort of living Instead of living in the moment, enjoying the people that you're in person with, the thought of, oh, I have to get the perfect picture of this moment for my self-presentation online, for my image online. And, and I love what you said about sort of your own sort of private tender spaces. We, we don't have to announce our relationship status online <laughs> at every step of the way. Um, yeah, so I think you had a lot of them, Gracie. You know, another
0: thing that I see ch- young people doing that I think is very damaging is they have uh, exposed themselves to shame and and also their families. You know, young people get very passionate. You remember being a young person, right, Maureen? We're at the same age. Yeah, I think it wasn't exactly that long, long ago. ago. And we we you get passionate when you're young, and you 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 want to live out loud and say all the things that are at the top of your at the in the in the front of your head, and and sometimes those things aren't you know they, they're not good to say. They're going to cause you shame now or later or your family. I see a lot of people acting, young people
1: acting out online in ways that are going to hurt them very badly. Well, it's true because teenagers don't have, often don't have the judgment and experience to know what to say online or what not to say online. And I think, I think parents often feel so powerless over these devices. But again, I just want to encourage parents that you do actually have power over these devices because you don't have to give them to your kids. Your kids don't have to be online and it's actually easier to, raise kids who are not hooked on these devices and platforms. Um, So I just encourage parents to be strong and confident in saying no.
0: Oh, thank you, Maureen. That's really good advice. And and yeah, let's let's parents stick together and, and stop letting tech companies raise our children for us. We can do a much better job. Thanks for joining me today, Maureen. Great to be with you, Gracie. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at the Catholic And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel.
2: This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation God wants to have with each of us as together we celebrate the great gift of the birth of the Lord Jesus this Christmas 2021. On Christmas, the Church gives us four different Masses to help us mark the wonder of the day and the Gospel and the liturgical prayers for each of them have a different focus and invite us into a different consequential conversation. At the Vigil Mass, we ponder the angel's words to St. Joseph, not to be afraid to take Mary and the child growing within her into his home. We ask God for the grace to help us joyfully welcome Jesus as our Redeemer. At midnight mass, we contemplate the radiant glory of God shining around the angels as they announce the good news of great joy to the shepherds awake, keeping their watch over their flocks by night. We pray to God that the light of Christ's birth might shine in the darkness and lead us to see all things in the light of Christ. At the mass at dawn, we accompany the shepherds, and they're going with haste to Bethlehem to see the infant Savior. We ask the Lord to allow the light of faith to shine through our deeds and to help us to encounter Christ and offer ourselves to him as worthy gifts. In all of those Gospels, we retrace the history of progressive revelation by God and deepening awareness among his people, seeking to lead us step by step into a greater assimilation of that mystery. At Mass on Christmas Day, however, in the Gospel and in the prayers, we come to the dramatic conclusion, the Church's most profound explanation of the meaning of the birth of Jesus. Many people, as you know, talk about the reason for the season of Christmas. And by it, they basically mean something good, that Jesus is the reason for the season, as they seek to keep themselves, their families and our culture focused on God rather than on commercialism. But as praiseworthy as those efforts are, we need to state that it's not sufficient or theologically precise to declare that Jesus alone is the reason for this season. The real reason for the season of Christmas is what Jesus seeks to do in us. It's the why behind the what of the Son of God's becoming man. This is what Christmas Mass during the day helps us to ponder. The Gospel for the Mass from the Prologue of St. John is one of the deepest passages in all of Sacred Scripture. Unlike the Gospel readings at the other Christmas Masses, which have had hundreds of Christmas hymns written about them in various languages, this passage seldom makes it into music. There are no herald angels singing, no shepherds watching, no cattle lowing, no stars brightly shining, no little town of Bethlehem, no swaddling clothes, no Mary, no Joseph. But the Gospel brings us to the heart of what lies underneath all those unforgettable details. communicates to us first that the child placed in the manger is the actual incarnation of the Word who was in the beginning with God and was God, that this child is the eternal Word who out of love for us took on our flesh, our whole human nature, and made his dwelling among us. And second, it points to the whole mystery of whether we and others accept or reject this gift, whether we're like the ancient Bethlehem innkeepers who refused to make room even for a pregnant woman in labor, whether we're like that woman and her construction working husband who welcomed that child and allowed him to alter the trajectory of their life. St. John says, He came to what was his own, but his own people didn't accept him. But, this is one of the most important buts in history, but to those who did accept him, to those who believe in his name, who are born, not by natural generation, nor by human will, nor by man's decision, but of God, he gave power to become children of God. If we truly accept Jesus, if we receive him as he wishes to be received, if we allow him who took on human flesh to take on our flesh and blood, then we receive power to become children of God. This isn't just a beautiful image. It's the reality of what Christmas is meant to bring about. This is the mystery we contemplate and beg for in the opening prayer of Christmas Mass during the day. Turning to God the Father, we pray, O God who wonderfully created the dignity of human nature and still more wonderfully restored it, grant that we may share in the divinity of Christ who humbled himself to share in our humanity. The meaning of Christmas is that we cooperate with God in his making us divine. His giving us a greater gift than creation. Creation was a miracle but our recreation by Christ's redeeming love is something even more miraculous. After our fall, God comes to pick us up and lift us up even higher than we were before. The early saints of the Church said that the deepest mystery of Christmas is the Admirabile commercium, a Latin expression that means the miraculous exchange that happens between God and us when we accept the gift Christ is and gives. He has taken on our humanity to make us sharers in his own divine life. The preface the priest sings later at Mass develops this mystery. He prays to the Father. For through Christ your Son, the holy exchange that restores our life has shone forth today in splendor. When our frailty is assumed by your word, not only does human mortality receive unending honor, but by this wondrous union we too are made eternal. That gift not only changes our being, but our doing. At the offertory, the priest on behalf of all of us begs the Lord to make acceptable our oblation on this solemn day, when you manifested the reconciliation that makes us wholly pleasing in your sight, and inaugurated for us the fullness of divine worship. Christ, on Christmas Day, makes it possible for us to worship God the Father fully. Because in uniting ourselves to him, he makes it possible for us to give of ourselves totally to God and to others. Just as on Christmas we ponder how Jesus became our great Christmas gift, we also contemplate how he in turn, in divinizing or sanctifying us from within, seeks to make us in turn Christmas gifts, gifts of his incarnate presence, not only to the Father but to others, so that together with Jesus we can be the instruments of their sanctification and divinization. This admirabile commercium, this miraculous exchange, is the most consequential conversation of all time. One made not with words, but with God's divinity in our humanity. We enter into a wondrous dialogue that is meant to last forever. That's the reason for the season. That's the explanation for Christ becoming man and being born of a virgin. That's the purpose for which God created us and redeemed us. So we prepare for Christmas Mass and come together to celebrate the enduring manifestation of God with us. We give God thanks for going so far beyond what was possible for those in Bethlehem. There Mary and Joseph, the angels, the shepherds, the wise men, and others could all come and adore Christ the Lord on the outside. But at Mass we have the privilege to adore the same Christ on the inside, to receive him within so that he can transform us from within more and more into his human and divine likeness. That's the reason why in the middle of the offertory of every Mass, When the priest is placing a drop of water in a chalice full of wine, the priest always recites the opening prayer of Mass on Christmas Day by the mystery of this water and wine, which symbolizes our humanity and Christ's divinity, respectively. May we come to share in the divinity of Christ, who humbled himself to share in our humanity. The Mass is where we receive more and more the power to become children of God, glorifying our Father in Heaven. It's where we learn how to give God the fullness of divine worship. It's where the admirabile commercium that Christ came into the world to bring reaches its culmination. The reason for the Christmas season is to lead us to what Christ accomplishes at Mass. As St. John says in his prologue, as we hear Christmas Mass during the day, the Word of God becomes flesh and dwells us among us, and we see His glory, the glory of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth, that leads us to cry out, Venite Adoremus Dominum, O come let us adore Him. A blessed Christmas to you and your family.